I'm Kyle Salmon. And I'm Corey Astle. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast dedicated to examining conservative intellectual history to determine the core values of American conservatism. What does it mean to call yourself a conservative? What did it mean in prior times, and how did we get where we are today? We explore these questions and more by turning to conservative political thinkers from the past and present. Each episode, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. If you want to join the discussion, like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at ConsMinds. That's at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode 15, we continue our discussion of Democracy in America by Alexis de Tocqueville. In our last reading, we uh, had a few odds and ends, but I think it ties well into what we read for today. Tocqueville believes that religion is necessary for democracy. And this is something, Kyle, you and I have talked about quite a bit in a number of books. Mm -hmm. It's been brought up. You know, I have that open question of can conservatism survive with religion waning in American life? And Tocqueville comes strongly on the side of maybe not uh, because he, he believes religion is very necessary. He says, Americans so completely identify the spirit of Christianity with freedom in their minds that it is almost impossible to get them to conceive the one without the other. Americans believe religion is necessary for the maintenance of Republican institutions. While the law allows the American people to do everything, religion prevents their imagining everything and forbids them from daring to do everything. So this, this goes back to you know our question of, as it relates to conservatism, but also as it relates generally to morality, you know, is there is there a post-religion morality that can tame human characteristics that are maybe darker? These two questions of, on the one hand, can we have a morality without religion? On the other hand, can we have Republican institutions mm-hmm. that work? Because in our society, I mean, it really requires that people govern themselves in a lot of ways. The police can't be everywhere in all ways. And so he comes out pretty strong and even says there's a real fear that religion might disappear and society might be less fitted for freedom and what happens when when that happens so how do you see it kyle do you think that that religion is required for republican institutions i think i think the, when tocqueville was writing too it was sort of at the tail end of the second great awakening and it was a, a period like our own where we were kind of on a downswing towards secularism and i mean if you believe in that great awakening theory where you know, religious fervor comes and goes in waves that we really can't pinpoint the cause of, then you could, I think his position was a lot like ours where, where, you know, formal church attendance was down. And though he talks about Americans all being pretty religious, I think you get the same kind of people you had. Do you have a lot of people today who are, who call themselves religious, but don't really go to church and don't particularly limit themselves by religion. Like they believe in something and, you know, like a lot of our past political leaders like Abraham Lincoln wasn't really a churchgoer, although he definitely talked about God and providence and he believed in something, but he he wasn't really a, you know, every Sunday church attendant, like we would think of what it means to be religious. So I think Tocqueville was looking at sort of the same problems that we're looking at today. So one answer to that could be, well, religion could come back as it did after him. Mm-hmm. Sure, but I also I also think even if even if that doesn't happen, his point about democracy needing it more than other forms of government is important because 
as, as he explains a, a few different times throughout these readings, and democracy is, I mean, it's not just freedom to the individual, it's freedom to the government because they can, there's no restraint except, you know, mm-hmm. the individual people have to be self-restrained and the government has to be self-restrained because, I mean, we, we have our constitutions, but we can also amend them and, or just ignore them as, as we sometimes do. And in that system, there's no, you know, it's easy to jettison tradition when your only source of power is the people who are currently voting. So mm-hmm. I think something is certainly necessary in democracy. I agree, I agree with him. I'm not certain that it, I mean, he focuses on Christianity since that was by far the majority belief in America then and now, but even if it's not specifically, you know, Trinitarian Christianity or, or even a broader Christianity, it's, it's, there's gotta be something that when people get to that pinnacle of, of political power, you know, stays their hand when they could say, when, when they have their hand on that lever of power and are willing to do whatever it takes to stay in power or to achieve their agenda, there has to be something that says the ends don't justify the means. And that, that's what, that's, what's missing in socialism mm-hmm. and fascism and a lot of other anti-democratic beliefs. That's right. So, I, I mean, short answer, we need something and that something has tended to be religion. Yeah. Some sort of outside force that creates at least some fear or causes you to have a second thought about murdering people mm-hmm. and throwing them in the gulag more so than just, oh, I might get caught and I might myself, you know, someday suffer the same fate. But, you know, in the next world, there might be punishment. It, what really stood out to me, too, is this this idea that this, he says the spirit of Christianity is so intertwined that people it's almost impossible to get them to conceive the one without the other. He says, uh, freedom and Christianity. I tend to really think that's right, that there's, there's something inherent about, you know, Christian, Christian beliefs that really allowed freedom and, you know, the enlightenment project and liberal democracy to flourish and to, to come about. There, there is some worry. And I, as, as we kind of pull away from those beliefs that, that it gets replaced by some, I don't know, either a, either a radical uh, individualism on a secular side or Republican Party, on the, maybe on the further right, are more worried about, you know, Sharia law coming to, mm-hmm. co- coming about in America. I, I don't see that happening, but certainly in in Europe, it's uh, it's changing their culture very quickly. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, there has to be something. And I, I, one thing I do see today that wouldn't have been around in Tocqueville's time is is maybe people learning from the example of the, the fall of fascism as sort of a secular a bulwark against violating liberty because nobody likes the fascists anymore. And what we, and so seeing, well, they, you know, they violated liberty in the exact way that, you know, somebody else is proposing to do it right now, but it's not, it's not the same because it's not really as, as external and as uh, transcendental as, as a religious belief, it can be argued around, but mm-hmm. maybe, I mean, for secular people seeing the horrors of the 20th century, and we can in- include, you know, Soviet communism in with that, that could, you know, for people who don't believe in God, but still believe in Liberty serve as a, uh, a kind of an external guide. I do think that, that even 
in a in an increasingly secular society, the fact that we're kind of still all brought up in a quasi Christian milieu helps. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, we've got those those background right. values. Uh, it's kind of I was thinking of a kind of like a herd immunity, you know, with vaccines and whatnot. You know, it's where somebody individually might not be Christian and might not feel that particular call to worship God in any way, but growing up, you know, he's swimming in a sea of Judeo-Christian values and he's still being informed by the things, the way Christianity and Liberty were intertwined in our history. So Mm -hmm. I, I I mean, but then of course, like with a herd immunity, you still need most people to be believing it. So I don't, and I don't know if if that's our future, the way things are going. Well, and it makes me wonder, of course, we don't have any proof of this, but you know, the rise of socialist thinking on the left as well as it, it's also the case that the strongest Trump supporters were not actually the church going evangelicals. It was those folks who are Christian and claim a church, but didn't don't actually go to church. So in other words, I, I don't think that it's coincidental that, that the people who like Trump are people who don't necessarily worry too much about, you know, God and church and things. And on the left, like those folks who, I mean, this is what's really interesting about the the Democratic Party coalition is it's led by white elites who are atheists, (laughs) but the core of the party are African-Americans who are Baptist and very religious or Mm -hmm. Hispanics who are Catholic and very religious. So they have an interesting, you know, balance there too. I mean, right now the coalition works because because the front burner issues are not religion for them, but for greater emphasis is on, you know, diversity and so forth. But I, I do wonder, you know, as, as religion wanes and people seek meaning in politics, you know, what are the ramifications for that? I don't think they're good. I mean, you, you and I have discussed this in other, for other books in the past, mm-hmm. but uh, human beings want meaning. They do want limits in their life. They do want governing principles. You know, they're not getting them from religion. And it's increasingly more the case that people are finding that in, in politics and in these grand crusades to right the world's wrongs and get involved at, at that level. Yeah. And, and Tocqueville addressed that too. I mean, he was more talking about moving from one sect to another, but he talked about sometimes, you know, a person's interest in church or his faith in God will, will wane and, you know, he'll stay away for a while, but he eventually drifts back maybe to a different sect, like one character on the wire said, every, a man must have a code. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's, I mean, it was on the show, but I think it was sort of ironic, but it, uh, people do want codes. People do want beliefs. Um, mm-hmm. And people will find something to believe in. And I think it was, uh, not sure, was it Hayek who talked about that as socialism as substitute for religion no one of our earlier readings went at that same point and kind of expanded on what Tocqueville is saying here I, I thought it was interesting too is he he doesn't really think Americans are into theory that much mm-hmm. I mean he gets into this a lot is that Americans are into sort of practical ideas and I'm, I'm not sure that's still true let me see the, the quote was that Americans' preferences are for order, without which affairs do not prosper, and they set an especial value on regular, regularity of mores, which are the foundation of sound business. They prefer mm-hmm. the good sense, which creates fortune, to the genius, which, which often dissipates them. Their minds are accustomed to definite calculations and are frightened by general ideas, and they hold practice in greater honor than theory. 
I think there are a lot of people like that. I don't know if it's a general trait of Americanism, but that that sort of sounds like that common sense conservatism you hear. Mm-hmm. And you sometimes hear it on the left too. It's like, well, we're not interested in theories. We just want to know what works. I think yeah. Obama said that a lot, maybe to convince people that he wasn't a radical. He's like, no, if it doesn't work, I don't want to do it. Um, I don't know if anyone in government really follows through on that sort of thing, but it's a, uh, that's an interesting mixing that with religion because religion is often so theoretical and especially the sectarian differences, you know, the reason churches split is often something that is not practical at all. It's about, you know, real deep theology and, you know, how the world was formed and the relationship with, with, you know, father and son and, you know, these sorts of things. But, uh, I don't know. What do you think? I mean, do you think we are more common sense kind of people? Like he says, well, it's an interesting question, and I can't. Th- I think it kind of feeds into this phenomenon that he labels self-interest properly understood. Mm. So he says basically, in America, virtue is almost never promoted. American moralists are bold enough to say that sacrifice for others is good for self-interest. Americans take pains to prove that it's in each man's best interest to be virtuous. Self-interest properly understood has been universally accepted. It's woven into everything Americans say, whether poor or wealthy. And to that extent, I mean, that sounds right to me. Certainly when I was growing up, even in a religious household, there was this kind of sense that, hey, look, by doing good, it's good for you too. You know, in in the pejorative, we'd call it the prosperity gospel, right? That you you do good for your neighbor. God's going to see you. He's going to bless you. And it's it's all going to turn for your own benefit. And so there, I think there's a, at least among Christian communities, there's a pretty sharp practicality about that, that, Hey, look, let's just go out and do, let's not worry about, you know, thinking highbrow, big thoughts instead, let's, let's go out and do help the neighbor. That's going to be good for the neighbor. And it's going to be ultimately be good for you because you're going to be blessed for it. And it's going to work to your benefit. And again, it goes back to, is, is there something unique or something special about sort of Christian beliefs that actually does tie into individualism and freedom. And I think this is part of it. And I think this is what he's pointing to too is, well, what makes it, what makes it a little bit different is, you know, in Christianity, particularly in Protestant Christianity, Mormons too, you have this conception of God where you're a unique person who has a personal relationship and you're working out your salvation personally, you're doing it in a community and you're working together and helping each other, but ultimately it's your own personal salvation that you're working out. And so there's a real individualistic idea there, of an ideal of a single you know, child of God, let's say, who's working with friends and family and neighbors and community and society, but ultimately the the judgment will come upon you, mm-hmm. you know, positive or negative, you know, in that all same frame of mind, you can, I think it ties in with self-interest properly understood because you're kind of like, well, it actually is in my self-interest to work in the community and to help my neighbor and for my neighbor to help me and for us to sort of work together and, and build this community. And it's kind of, how you bridge the gap of kind of pretty individualistic, you know, seeking your salvation religion while at the same time, like how does it tie into the community and how do we, what, when we're trying to build, build a Zion or whatever, what, you know, how does that tie in? And I think this is it because as, as we help each other and as we, you know, build community together, it's also, it also turns to our benefit. And so there's, I think a, a real practical element to, to the religion. And then that ties into the, you know, broader citizenship in a democratic society. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's right. And I I think he, he kind of made a a similar point about the practicality of religion 
in, in the part where he says that it, to each individual, it really matters which sect he joins and exactly his beliefs, because that's, that's really, that's part of that personal journey of saying, you know, which, which of this is true for me, which, which, which approach to salvation is true for me, what, what makes sense. But for society, Tocqueville says, it doesn't really matter which one you're in. You know, if you're a Methodist or, or a Baptist or a Catholic or a Mormon, you're all doing the good work that makes society come together and makes democracy work. So, and that's, I mean, that's sort of also a, like a free exercise case. It doesn't matter to the government if you're sitting in, you know, an Anglican church. Like in England, they wanted everyone to be in one church and, you know, they had their reasons for that. But in America, it doesn't matter which one you're in, but we'd like you to be in one. And I think that was sort of his idea and the general idea in society at the time. He also, uh, in, in one of the readings in volume two, talked about how democracy without that restraint can really lead to a spiral of materialism. And I think that's mm -hmm. something we see a lot today. The yeah. idea that people are going to seek comfort in life. And then when you get some comfort, you're going to seek a little more and a little more. And if, and that can become without that sort of governing that self-governor of religion that can become the, the focus. And I, I think that's some of the stuff you see when people talk about, um, you know, guaranteed income as sort of, you know, the highest, you know, even for not just welfare or disability or things for like, people who can't work or out of work temporarily, but just this idea that, yeah, we'll just, we'll just give everybody money. People will still work though. And it's like, no, mm -hmm. I don't think that's gonna, <laughs> I don't, I don't know the people these people know because i know i know a lot of people <laughs> if you got free money and if it was enough to make a difference you'd work a lot less i think most people would of course yeah. um but that's that sort of that sort of like death spiral towards increasing comfort at the at the expense of everything else that he talks about and um religion in tocqueville's telling prevents this by focusing people on higher things saying yeah you know you could just sit there I mean, in our day, it would just, you know, I don't know, uh, smoke weed and play video games. In his day, it would have been, I don't know, hanging out at the tavern. Mm -hmm. But you could, you could waste your life away in comfort if you had the money. Uh, but religion is the sort of thing that encourages us to get into that community, to make those intermediary institutions, not just the churches, but just like we talked about last week, you know, free association builds free association. Mm -hmm. You know, when you get together for one thing, for politics, for religion, then you might get together for another thing, you know, to form a neighborhood sports team or to do a park cleanup or to do, you know, things that are neither political nor religious at heart, but are, are the, the independent actions of groups that keep us free by performing, you know, the necessary functions of life without the need for, you know, a, a one size fits all government. Yeah. When, and when it comes to materialism and, I guess what we consider the pitfalls of human nature. He kind of channels George Will, or I'm actually in the other way around. George Will channels him, but Tocqueville says, all the legislator's skill consists in carefully appreciating the natural inclinations of human societies to gauge where he ought to help citizens' efforts and where it would be necessary to slow them down. In other words, as George Will argued, you know, one of the principal roles of government is to help citizens develop virtue and become better people and become better citizens and create a more just and virtuous society. In Tocqueville's 
estimation. You know, that this is this is one of the principal jobs of a legislator as well as to figure out how best to, you know, appreciate the natural inclinations of human society, figure out, you know, we know what some human the pitfalls of human nature, how do we make sure we keep people on the straight and narrow, so to speak, and how do we keep them from falling into the the trap of materialism and focusing on unimportant things and degenerating. Yeah, he's he's made a lot of interesting points, and you can see where later readings drew on his ideas, or at least came up with the same kind of ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, one last quote on religion that, that jumped out to me about just about limited government and, and self self limiting. So, up till now, no one in the United States has dared to profess the maxim that everything is allowed in the interest of society, an impious maxim apparently invented in the age of freedom in order to legitimize every future tyrant. I think that definitely describes America in the 1830s. No one would say that back then. Mm-hmm. I think that as socialism or democratic socialism becomes more acceptable in America, I don't know that that statement still holds true here in 2019. And and that that maybe reinforces his point about the necessary necessity of religion to democracy because I think there are people, especially on the socialist left, but I mean you could you could imagine it from a from a fascist also saying that yeah everything in the interest of society is permitted of course and does justify the means the greatest good for the greatest number you know that sort mm-hmm. of utilitarian idea that always sounds nice I mean you know like, who wouldn't want to do the greatest good for the greatest number. It's just that it, it always it always ends in the gulag. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, it doesn't. It's not too many steps before you end up like Venezuela. Yeah, for sure. There, there's one more thing on religion that I that I thought was really interesting that we should cover, and then we'll move on. But he he talks about religious, basically religious overreach, and he says by allying itself to a political power, religion increases its authority over some, but loses the hope of reigning over all. And and I'm wondering if we can. I wonder if we see any parallels to today. When it is mixed up with a, the bitter passions of this world, it is sometimes forced to defend allies who have joined it through self-interest and not through love. Mm, yeah. yeah. I mean, is that is that the religious right in, in Trump? Uh, unbelievers in Europe attack Christians more as political enemies than as religious opponents. They detest faith more as a party opinion than as a mistaken doctrine. And I think we really see this because, again, like in the history of America, Everyone was religious. Everyone was Christian, and so being religious and Christian didn't imply that you were Republican, right? I mean, that's kind mm-hmm. of a, a phenomenon that's come about basically since the 1990s, and I think that this is a just a really prescient projection of well, everybody's religious, but if religion starts to ally itself with you know one political one political party and not not the other, well, then suddenly you're going to see pretty quickly like some anti-religion and you're, they're going to lose hope of being as potent you know religion has potency when everybody's sort of in the system and and agrees that you know these are the you know these are the requirements of god and so forth but you know once it becomes a political entity well then now you're just talking about factions and party versus party and and i think this is manifested itself pretty clearly too when it comes to democrats because again base of their party african-americans and, and also you know many hispanics latinos are pretty religious Christian Catholic, you know, but there seems to be much more defense, certainly among white elites in the left for Islam and Muslims. And basically like a, a really 
you know, negative view of Christians and the religious right. And I kind of think it has less to do with religion. And I think, and I think it has more to do with this phenomenon that, that Tocqueville is pointing at, which is that kind of a lot of, especially evangelical Christians and, you know, the religious right has aligned itself so tightly with the Republican party that even today, you know, they're pretty hugely supportive of, of a president who does not necessarily embody any of its values, yeah, I, I, not, notwithstanding the judges. Right. No, I, I see that a lot when people argue against, I mean, even when, when friends of mine who are on the left talk about Christianity, they go right to the phony Christians, you know, and talk, well, they don't, you know, the ones who, oh, they don't really live that. They don't really believe that. And I'm like, well, I'm talking about Christianity. I'm not talking about how individuals practice it. But that's that spirit of factualism, factionalism for sure is because then you, you can look at somebody some minister who turns out to be, uh, you know, personally not what he's not what he's preaching. You know, and we've seen these scandals throughout our lives, and you know, it does happen because men are flawed, and mm-hmm. you're going to get that. But that that eagerness to put the the fallen Christian as the representative of all Christianity, I think, has its roots in factionalism because they. Even if they like the ideas of Christianity, even if they are themselves Christians, I think people on the left will look at that, how closely the Christian rights allied with the Republican Party, and it'll mm-hmm. cause that instinctive rejection in the same way. That I, I think there are probably, there's probably something similar maybe within how the right reacts to environmentalists. Because, I mean, there's, there's a lot of people yeah. on the right who like hunting and fishing and hiking, you know, things that, well, we should conserve nature, you know maybe not overturn all of society and get rid of all fossil fuels and airplanes and everything like you're hearing out of the green new deal folks, but you know, we should have parks. I mean, there, there's, yeah. if that, but, but the green stuff gets so tied in with the socialist stuff that it makes us be like, no factories are good. You know? <laughs> like factories are good, but right. they're, yes. you know, they're yeah. not an unalloyed good. You know, there are, there are externalities here. Tocqueville mentions too, I think something that we, that was a common thought in his day that we've lost sight of is established churches, you know, state churches. I think the founding fathers were against them for a couple of reasons. I mean, one was the reason we still come up with, which is the government shouldn't tell you where to go to church. And I think we all still believe that, but they also saw mm-hmm. the danger to the church itself. And that's kind of what I think you were talking about. You know, if, if we had a church of America, the way they have a church of England, then that church would have to represent America and that church's bishops would have to represent the party in power and that, and it would, wouldn't preach against anything the government was doing because they'd have to be united. They'd be dependent on the government for their support. And it would really, it would twist the uh, religious impulses of those clergymen into being really puppets for the government. And I think that that's what I think a lot of the founding fathers saw in the church of England is that, these guys weren't even churchmen anymore. They were politicians in robes. Mm -hmm. And I I think you definitely get that when you get guys making common calls with maybe a president who doesn't embody their beliefs in his personal life, but well, you know, he's strong on certain points like abortion and he's good with the judges and he does some things that do benefit, you know, Christians and, and other religious people. And he, you know, he believes in free religion, at least in law, but then like, are you, are you getting in bed with the guy? I mean, are you, is it, is it a cynical judgment or do you really like him? And that starts to, because of that tribalism, it starts to mix and you say, no, he's actually good. We like him. You know? Well, right. Okay. Right, yeah. I mean, the church is, a church is better 
when it's when they can say that both sides are wrong when they can when it can be apart from government and encourage everyone in government and both parties to live up to their better nature rather than picking a side and you know ride or die so tocqueville also believes in or sees this american exceptionalism and it's interesting to get some of his thoughts on what he may what he thinks makes america special but in his time as well as today right i mean it's very fashionable to attribute any societal achievements entirely to you know environmental mm-hmm. factors like geography and resources and we've had book after book you know guns germs steel that sort of say right. make this have this thesis make this argument that uh, there's nothing special about the people they just got lucky uh, but with environment and, and geography and i'm not saying there's nothing to that but that i personally think and i think conservatism would hold that there are other factors at play and Let's hear what Tocqueville has to say. He says, If all that was needed for nations to be happy was to be placed in a corner of the universe where they could spread out at will over unpopulated areas, in other words, if all that was needed was geography, he says, South America would be able to sustain Mm -hmm. democracy. (laughs) But he said, Mexico, which is as fortunately situated as the Anglo-American Union, has adopted, you know, the same laws, but and it also has the same geography, but cannot get used to a democratic form of government. All peoples of North and South America enjoy a democratic state of society, yet democ- democratic institutions prosper only in the United States. So he says, thus physical causes not only fail to bring similar results in South and North America, but South America cannot even achieve anything which is superior to Europe, where the geography works against them. I see other peoples of America enjoying the same physical conditions of prosperity as the Anglo-Americans, but without their laws and customs. And these nations are miserable. So what he really thinks, and he says, American laws must account for a great part of success. So he thinks our law, our legal system that he saw in America was a great part of the success. But I think they have less influence than customs. And he talks at, at length about customs and i think by customs what he's really talking about is culture you know our uh, our christian heritage the puritanism that he saw in new england the democracy that he found the equality of opportunity that he focuses on that there was something special about american culture that made you know american exceptional and allowed democratic institutions to grow and to thrive and for you know Americans to have all of these characteristics that we've been talking about last week and this week. And I just thought that was great because I really believe that that is part of the conservative intellectual understanding of America, that geography certainly plays a role. You know, we don't have any enemies that can, that can attack us. Canada and Mexico mm-hmm. are not threats. Our, our system of laws that we inherited from mostly from England absolutely play a role and these are all very important factors but he also saw something about the culture he calls customs but something about the culture that was different and that was special that that created much of the success that that america sees yeah i I think and i think some of that the the stuff we talked about last week with him the reason that people came to new england was for an idea and that makes for an unusual group of founders that most countries don't have and most countries are formed by conquest um and there was some conquest going on in new england too i mean there was king philip's war was a pretty bloody affair but they that's not why they came here they didn't come here for gold like the conquistadors they 
They wanted to make a living, but they also could have made a living in England. Or some of them were in the Netherlands in exile from England, but they, they were they were prosperous enough. So they came over here for an idea. I was reading about uh, one of the, when the founding fathers were coming up with the motto of the United States, one of the, before they settled on the Pluribus Unum, uh, I think it was Franklin suggested the idea that the motto, rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. Hmm. And you, I don't think you'd get that in most countries. Right. And that just that idea, the right of revolution that Jefferson wrote about so often. Yeah, there's, just, it, there's something in those cultural mores that's not um, easily replicated elsewhere. And it can be. And, you know, since Tocqueville's day, there's been a lot better success for democracy in Latin America. Mexico's pretty democratic now. I mean, they have free elections. You know, some some of their politicians might end up in jail, but that's that happens here, too. You know, Chile... Argentina, you know, there's, there's free elections going on. Colombia is a lot better than it used to be. So, I mean, it can be, it can be a matter of law. I think it took them longer because they were coming out of a Spanish colonial situation that didn't really value the same sort of, you know, they, I don't think they were setting up houses of Burgesses the way early Virginians did they, mm-hmm. right away or the Mayflower, Mayflower conflict compact in, in, Plymouth colony, you know, whereas even before they landed, they said, all right, we're going to govern ourselves. Here's the rules. We're all going to have votes and things. And it, it, you know, you don't get that everywhere, but it's not totally, I don't think Tocqueville would say it. I, mean, I he doesn't say that it's not replicable. It's just, I think we get a little head start because of the, the English legal heritage. Right. And then, but then America serves as an example because again, he's he's writing democracy in America. This book to send back to France to sort of say, like, hey, we want to move in the democratic direction as well. This is what it looks like. You know, this is this is the strengths, this is the weaknesses, and and he's kind of like, why did I grow up in America? Well, it looks like this is part of it. You know, they just had this really interesting culture, and and you're right. I mean, democracy has spread around the world, South America as well as obviously in Europe. Mm-hmm. But it, it is interesting to think. Well, they the rest of the world has an example in America. But it's not entirely replicable because we, as we saw in, particularly in Iraq, but also Afghanistan. I mean, Iraq is a is a country that has that has plentiful resources, right? And it, even in Russia, you know, they have plentiful resources, but democracy doesn't take root. And in Iraq, we tried to force it, and it didn't work. There's something more that's required than just resources. And here, the, here's the law: like we'll just write it down on a piece of paper, and you know, just implement this and you'll be fine. And, you know, I think ultimately it can work that way, but it doesn't automatically work that way. People have to accept it. And I think that's part of the, the culture and customs that, that he's talking about here. Yeah. The isolation is definitely a, a big factor. Um, I think cause we got a chance to prosper and to develop these traditions of Republican governance without any, you know, conqueror from next door coming in and and either smashing it all to pieces or fighting us and and encouraging us to put our faith in a tyrant too, to resist their tyrant, which I think you'd you'd get in Europe. Like, I mean, the French Revolution had flaws besides the fact that it was in France, but the fact that it was in France meant, and that they, you know, were, you know, upturning the, the, the big principle in Europe, which was that you have a king and he's in charge. You know, maybe if they if they'd been on an island in the middle of nowhere, that might have worked. They might have 
had a chance to work out the the kinks in their problem and you know and maybe build a stable republican tradition but instead they had every government in europe furious at them because they cut the king's head off mm. and all their kings were related to that king and they knew him and you know all of all the monarchs in europe wanted to strangle that revolution in the cradle we we had a little breathing room so that 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 probably did help but i think like you said we could we once we did get established we could serve as the example a city on a hill yeah the idea that you know look this is this can work people can govern themselves we don't need any crowned heads or landed aristocracy we, we're doing okay mm -hmm. you know you can that you can have rights and freedoms and still have stable government and, and good order so, yeah i mean we had our advantages but i think once we had them they were transmittable to other countries yeah that's a good way to put it all right well in the few minutes that we have left i think we'd remiss be remiss if we didn't discuss for at least for a second the tyranny of the majority you know this is mm -hmm. this is probably the the issue that tocqueville is maybe most known for for people who don't jump into political theory but uh I, i'm i'm interested in his thoughts as it relates to uh, tyranny as tyranny of the majority relates to uh speech and he says uh under majority he's talking about uh how speech operates in practice under majority rule even though in america we have the first amendment free speech and so forth but he it's almost like he does he's he he's channeling his his inner uh, foucault like talking about the how the society and power sort of limit what you can say but he says speech is allowed if the majority cannot make up its mind but once decided speech is silenced i'm like okay what do you mean by that in america the majority has staked out a formidable fence around thought inside those limits a writer is free but woe betide him if he dares stray beyond them formerly tyranny employed chains and executioners but nowadays civilization has civilized despotism itself. You are free not to share the majority view, but from today you are a pariah among us. When you approach your fellows, they will shun you like an impure creature. And those who believe in your innocence will be the very people to abandon you lest they be shunned in their turn. And I think maybe the best, clearest example of that today is the majority view on gay marriage. Now, I'll just stipulate and yeah. say I, I've been a supporter of gay marriage for a long time, but but it, it really is striking and and a little bit it's deeply unnerving actually that the majority in America was strongly opposed to gay marriage basically until until the you know the middle of Obama's term, and then it was mm -hmm. kind of and so it was perfectly okay to talk about you know theological reasons for opposing gay marriage. But then then suddenly, you know, Joe Biden says he supports gay marriage and then Obama says he supports gay marriage. And then almost from that moment on, it is no longer acceptable. And if you want to talk about theological reasons for opposing gay marriage, then you are a bigot and you hate, you know, and you are a pariah in society. So I think, I just thought this was exactly right while I, while I was reading this. I was like, yeah, you know what? That happens all the time today. Yeah, and it, it turned so quickly. It was it is kind of surprising. It, it, I think it wrong-footed a lot of us. It's interesting that he thinks this is a problem unique to democracy, and I think he's right because if there, it, democracy is the only system in which the individual's opinion matters. Uh -huh. 
So, you know, our, if, if, we, if we came out against gay marriage, that's a threat to somebody who believes in it and wants it enshrined in law. Whereas if you were, if you and I were serfs under the czars, well, nobody cares what we think, you know, because we can't do anything about it. We're going to be stuck behind the plow regardless. And we don't have any social mobility or democratic, you know, strength. We're just, you know, just two dudes. And that doesn't really matter. But democracy in, in giving the people power, I guess, also gives us that, gives gives heterodox opinions uh, that adds danger to them. It is sort of, it's like the whole social media system where sometimes somebody somebody you never heard of will say something that, that goes afoul of one of these things that's now you know settled mm-hmm. majority opinion and people pile on and it's like well this is just some guy you know i mean it, we have tolerance in law for speech but sometimes i think we don't have enough of it in in practice you know people say well it's not censorship if the government's not throwing you in jail for saying it that's true that's not i mean censorship means i guess it, it generally means the government stopping you from saying a thing but we also have this idea i think in the american system of tolerance on an individual level that is harder to maintain in practice than it is to just say well, I'm tolerant. I, I'm open-minded. I, I mm-hmm. respect other opinions. And it's like, well, what if somebody says this? Well, no, not that. Yeah. <laughs> no, that one's out of bounds. And it, it's hard to be tolerant because people say a lot of awful stuff. Uh-huh. Everyone is uh, everyone's a supporter of free speech at a theoretical level. Yes. But then, but then at the practical level, and they say something you don't like, then but, suddenly, well, not that. But if we don't maintain it at the at the at the cultural level, then it will disappear in law. Mm-hmm. Because, You're... like in like we were saying, you know, in other countries, if they just they just copied our constitution and our code, is are they going to have the same democracy as we have? Well, no, because they're they don't have the background of having democracy. They don't have the idea of respecting those laws. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's easy to ignore law or override it, or just you know create exception after exception until it disappears. If you don't have the cultural background of saying tolerance is a is a virtue. Yeah. You know, whether it be religious tolerance or tolerance of speech and ideas, you know, if you don't have that cultural virtue, the law is going to fade away. You know, it can't hold back the tide. And to me, this is the sort of the marquee battle between, let's say, Fox News and MSNBC is is the struggle to define speech that we do like or don't like you know, what's politically correct what's not politically correct mm-hmm. and it's kind of like one side is is trying to push to say that's off limits and yeah. the other side is saying no that's on limits <clears throat> but what you're doing that's what's off limits in terms of free speech you know on the left we have all of these inconvenient you know empirical facts that that can't be shared you know in in uh, good company mm-hmm. like any conversation to, that deals with you know, Intel IQ or something like that, for example, I think is a great example mm-hmm. that's, that finds, that finds airing in the intellectual dark web, but can't possibly be, you know, ad- admitted in any academy, but that, that IQ makes a difference in people's lives. But, and, and then on the other side, like, let's say kneeling for the flag or whatever is, is what's off limits. So, yeah. so you have, you have this grand struggle between sides of trying to, trying to persuade you know, the American people uh, as to what should be off limits and 
what should be on limits uh, as it relates to speech. Yeah, and each one feeds into that outrage machine too, because you look for the unspeakable on the other side. You know, did you hear what he said? That's right. outrageous. <laughs> Send me fifty dollars for my campaign, and I'll stop this. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, it, it's way easier to gin up that sort of sentiment when somebody's doing the unspeakable. But I guess each side, you know, as each side increases their unspeakables, there's a there's not much left to speak to each other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Any last word on Tocqueville? Well, there's not not much left to say. I think we've, we. I'm glad we took two episodes to cover it because there's so much here. I mean, he's, his observations in are just really accurate in the way that only an outsider's observations can be because he's you know he's seeing the whole society anew from outside finding our our virtues and our flaws and then at the same time he's also saying some things that i i think more of this is still true than isn't there were a few things where i i I don't think that really holds true in in the 21st century but for for the most part his, his his thoughts on just how people interact what what people do how they try to govern themselves and what makes america different it mostly holds up and it makes it makes me definitely eager to recommend this to anyone American or otherwise who wants to understand this country. Uh, Tocqueville is is a is readable. I mean, you'll you'll find yourself if you're the sort of person who underlines in your books, you'll find yourself underlining constantly because he's got a lot to say. Absolutely, I couldn't agree more. And we started our discussion with a quote from Harvard political scientist Harvey Mansfield, who said that. Democracy in America is the best book ever written on democracy and the best book ever written on America. And he very well could be right. You know, I read excerpts when I was as as an undergrad. This is the first time that we've really dug in and read the book. And I'll tell you, I mean, page after page, he's, he just generates insights and even contemporary research is more basically bearing out, you know, many of his observations, which is just really remarkable and amazing. So it's not that tough of a book to read, no. you know, relative to others. So I recommend it to any listeners who are interested in diving in for more. Okay, next time we're going to have a little change of pace. We're going to dive into some conservative legal theory with a book by former Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. Uh, he wrote a book called A Matter of Interpretation that he published in 1998. So hopefully we'll get you to join us then. Thanks. Peace.